Well, this parsha is a little bit different. This year, 5783, is not a leap year. And therefore, the final two parshios of the book of Exodus are read together in one week. As we know, the Jewish calendar, it's a hybrid. It's half a lunar calendar. We follow the lunar months. It's also a solar calendar because we follow the solar years. And as a result, we have to adapt our lunar month to the solar year. So every two or three years, there's a leap year, the extra month of Adar. And in order to accommodate the extra weeks in a leap year, the Torah is divided into enough parshios to have a parsha a week, even on those long leap years with 12 months. But on non-leap years, such as this year, we will have a few weeks where two parshios are read as one, and thus we have Parshas Vayakal and Pekude lumped into one. Now, I was thinking, for those of us that have the great fortune of reading the Parsha three times over the course of the week, twice in Hebrew and once in the Aramaic translation, we have an opportunity, when there's an extra Parsha, to study even more Torah. And I did the math, it's over 200 verses. And we know that every word of Torah is its own mitzvah. But the truth is, the mitzvah of Torah study, every mitzvah, our sages tell us, is equal to 613 mitzvahs. So if we have 200 verses, and each verse has, I don't know, let's just assume 10 or so words, and you multiply that times 3, and you multiply that times 613, you do the math. More than a million mitzvahs just by reading the Parsha three times. How lucky we are. How fortunate we are. What a privilege. What an opportunity to stockpile mitzvahs. But now we have to focus on the Parsha itself. We are in the implementation phase of the building of the tabernacle. All the instructions are conveyed. All the materials have been contributed. It's all assembled, ready to go. But Salel and his team, and his crew are mobilized. And now, it's time to build. And our parsha, our parshios, both of them, go through every aspect of the tabernacle, all the vessels, the garments of the high priest, and the various tabulations of how much gold and silver and all the other various items went into this, the final auditing. And finally, the second parsha, parsha Bakudi ends, and the book, the book of Exodus ends, with the glory of Hashem filling the tabernacle. When this mission was undertaken a few weeks ago, the plan was that we will build a sanctuary for God, and now the Almighty, in fact, dwelled in the house that the nation built for him. I want to focus on one of the vessels of the tabernacle and the materials it was constructed from, and the use that it had, and that is the tiar, known, of course, by the term the laver. Chapter 38, verse 8, we read that they made the kior. They made the laver out of copper, and its stand was of copper as well. This is the laver, the basin of water that the kohanim would wash their hands and feet with before entering the sanctuary, before doing any service in the tabernacle. 
And the verse tells us it was constructed using the mirrors of the women. And if you read the verse, it's a little bit unclear what exactly it means. And we have one of the most interesting Rashis in the entire Torah. Rashi tells us that the Jewish women, when they were still in Egypt, they used mirrors when applying their makeup. And this is in Egypt under the harsh conditions of unbearable slavery. And the Jewish women, they they put on makeup. And they used mirrors. And these mirrors were made of highly polished copper. And when the call came to donate all these precious stuff, gold and silver and copper, the women said, oh, I have copper. I have some highly polished copper that uses a mirror. I use it in Egypt as a mirror. And I want to donate that to the tabernacle effort. And this is the copper that was used to make the laver, the kiar. What a fascinating idea. Where's this copper come from? Rashi tells us, interpreting the verse, it came from the mirrors of the women in Egypt. Now it gets even more interesting. When they came to Moshe, we want to donate these copper mirrors. Moshe didn't want it. He thought it was inappropriate to use these copper mirrors for the tabernacle. Why? Because this is something that you use to increase the Yetzara, the evil inclination. The women would use it and they would make themselves more attractive. And that, after all, spurs the Yetzara, the evil inclination. And Moshe thought it was inappropriate for these items, for these copper mirrors to be placed in the tabernacle. He didn't want to accept it. That was Moshe's take. And God disagreed, Rashi tells us. God said, these are the most cherished in my eyes, so to speak. Of all the contributions, of all the gold and all the silver and all the various materials, the wood and the oil and the stones and the spices, says God, quoted by Rashi, chapter 38, verse 8, this is the most cherished and desirable and precious in the eyes of God. And the reason, Rashi tells us, because via these mirrors, the nation burgeoned. And these women merited to raise legions, a veritable army of Jews. And Rashi tells us, these mirrors helped the women beautify themselves. And that contributed to the demographic explosion of the nation. And why? Rashi explains. This is all in Rashi. Because their husbands in Egypt, they were literally slaving away. And the women would come and bring them food and drink and give them to eat and to drink. And they would take these mirrors and they would look into them with their husbands. And Rashi tells us that they would flirt. And through this, the men became desirous of their wives and they would procreate. They would have children. And that's why these mirrors are called Maros Hatsovos, which again, does not it's not so clear what it means, but Rashi interprets this as these are the mirrors that spawned legions. That's the origin of the mirrors of the laver. And that's 
what they donated. And that's what Moshe thought was inappropriate to be included in the tabernacle. And God said, this is the most cherished of all the donations. Now, Rashi tells us that, a third point, that it is fitting that the laver be crafted from those mirrors. Because these mirrors, they engendered love and harmony amongst the Jews and their families. This is what brought husband and wife together under very trying circumstances. And that is the role of the laver as well. The laver too, the function of the laver, is to bring peace between husband and wife. And the reason why Rashi tells us is because from this basin of water, from this laver, you make the concoction that is given to the suspected adulteress. We have a sota. This is a woman whose husband is a little bit jealous, and he warns her not to seclude with a given man. And she goes ahead and secludes with said man for a sufficient time to have committed adultery. And that creates a suspected adulteress, a sota. And the way this gets resolved is via the kiar, the laver. The woman is brought to Jerusalem to the temple, and she's given a drink of water from the laver, in which other things are dissolved. And if she, God forbid, committed adultery, then the waters would judge her, and she would die. And if she was innocent, then not only would she not be harmed by the water, she would emerge unscathed, but she would actually be the recipient of immense blessing for her trouble. This is the law of the Sota, the suspected adulteress. And the vessel in the temple that played a vital role for this was the laver. And therefore, it's fitting to use the copper mirrors that were originally in Egypt. They were so instrumental in fostering love and harmony and, and optimism between husband and wife, it makes sense that the laver that serves the same purpose, to, to remove the accusation or at least the, the suspicion of infidelity from the suspected adulteress. Of course, if there's a suspicion of adultery, there's a lot of distrust and lack of harmony between the couple. The laver and those mirrors and that copper that was originally there in Egypt to promote harmony and peace and love amongst husband and wife, it's going to continue doing that in the same capacity, so to speak, to resolve the uncertainty between husband and wife and to restore the harmony and the love just as the mirrors did in Egypt. This is what Rashi tells us, chapter 38, Parshas Vayakel. Fascinating Rashi. The women, they had mirrors. And they used the mirrors to arouse their husbands and to procreate and to spawn legions of the Jews, despite being subject to very harsh, unthinkable conditions. And Moshe thought it was inappropriate to use these mirrors. After all, their function was to spur the Sahara. And the writer responds, no, these are the most cherished of all the donations, because it brought about the legions of the nation. And this is why, Rashi concludes, this is why it is used to house the water of the Sota 
because this is the labor of love. It restored the love in Egypt, and it will continue doing that in the temple. A fascinating comment here in Rashi. Now, I want to examine this from a few different angles. The first thing, I find it very noteworthy that Moshe and God had such opposite perspectives on the suitability of these mirrors for use in the tabernacle. Moshe thought it was inappropriate for them to be included. And he had a good argument. His rationale was, well, this is used for the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is the evil inclination. It's the foreign God. The word Yetzirah is what we apply to anything that tries to replace or obviate God himself. So why would something, the mirrors, whose raison d'etre, I hope I did not butcher that too badly, raison d'etre, is to spur the Eitzahara, why would that be worthy of being in the house of God in the tabernacle? That was Moshe's argument. That seems to be a very good one. Now, the Yemai does more than just disagree. Moshe thought it was inappropriate. God doesn't say, ah, you know what? It's fine. It's tolerable. It's still okay. Yes, it's used for the Eitzahara, but so what? We could still allow that. That's not the Almighty's response. God goes in the completely opposite direction. God says, this is more cherished and more desirable and more befitting of being in the tabernacle than anything else. Of all the donations, this is number one. So God and Moshe are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. To Moshe, at least initially, it was totally unconscionable to include these copper mirrors in the tabernacle. And to the Almighty, it was the absolute best. So how do we understand this? What do we make of God and Moshe? We would imagine they would, you know, they'll be on the same page. What do we make of the fact that they, at least initially, they were on very different ends of this discussion? Now Moshe, he laid out his case. These mirrors. It's used as a tool of the Yetzirah. It's used to spur carnal desire. And the mighty responds by saying that it spawned legions of Jews. Now, Moshe, of course, knew that. So what exactly are they arguing about? How exactly is the mighty responding to the claim to the objection that Moshe made. It seems that there's something very deep and very fundamental going on over here. Moshe is saying, these copper mirrors, they're tools of the Yetzirah. Now, the Amite does not contest that premise. God agrees that these mirrors are, in fact, tools of the Yetzirah. But nevertheless, it is the most cherished. Why? Because it spawned legions of Jews. These copper mirrors are, in fact, the tool of the Yetzirah. But they were used for the best goal possible. 
And there is nothing as beloved and as cherished in the eyes of God, so to speak, as something that can be used for bad things, and it gets redeployed, repositioned, redirected, and used for good. These mirrors, in fact, are used to arouse the Yetzirah, and that everyone agrees upon. And for that reason, Moshe thought it was inappropriate for it to be part of the tabernacle. Tabernacles is going to serve as a dwelling place for God. It should not have any association with the foreign God. And the Almighty agreed that this is, that these mirrors are, in fact, paraphernalia of the Eight Sahara. But when used in this manner, in this context, for this purpose, it's not just that it becomes okay, it becomes tolerable, it's something that you can live with, it's kosher, it's admissible. Way more than that. It becomes more cherished than anything else. This is an incredibly important insight. The Yetzirah, truthfully, every bad thing, there is a version of it that's not only not bad, not only is it, it's okay, not only is it good, it could be better and more cherished than all the other undeniably good things. The Midrash tells us, this is a Midrash that I spent a lot of time on in my book, which I'm sure you've read already by now, but if you haven't, the book is titled Upon a Ten-String Tarp. The Midrash tells us that at the end of the Genesis narrative, the verse tells us that God saw all that he made, vihine tov ma'od, and behold, it was exceedingly good. Says the Midrash, tov, when God describes creation as good, he's referring to the yetzer tov, the good inclination. And when God says me'od, very good, exceptionally good, inordinately good, exceedingly good, that is a reference to the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the bad inclination, the ra, Hebrew for bad inclination. In the right setting, in the right context, in the right situation, it's not only good, it's even better than the Yetzer Tov. It is exceedingly good. In the proper context, in the right setting, when calibrated in the correct fashion, the Yetzer Hara can be even better than the Yetzer Tov. This is a fascinating insight. The problem, the flaw with the Yetzirah is not completely irreparable. It needs to be aligned. It needs to be positioned. When directed, when guided, when positioned, when calibrated properly, it's actually more cherished than anything else. It's more beloved. It's even better than the Yetzir Tov. Moshe was 100% correct that these mirrors were used for the Yetzirah. And that is precisely why the Almighty says that it's more cherished than everything else. Because a Yetzirah, 
an evil inclination that was repurposed for good, it's the absolute best. Now, there are many sources for this principle. I'll tell you a couple of them. There's a beautiful verse in Proverbs. Of course, every verse is beautiful, but this one really jumps out at you. Chapter 25, verse 21. If your enemy, Imra'ev Sonacha, if your enemy is hungry, feed him bread. If your enemy is thirsty, give him water to drink. This sounds like uh, we're trying to strengthen our enemies. Who wants to strengthen their enemies? So what exactly does it mean, your enemy? What does it mean, bread and water? Why would anyone empower their enemy? We don't believe in turning the other cheek. Says the Midrash. Who's your enemy? It's the Yetzirah. And if your Yetzirah is hungry, it's demanding that you sin. Feed it from the bread of Torah. If it's thirsty, if it's thirsty for sin, give it the drink with the waters of Torah. If you give your Yetzirah a steady supply of spiritual staples of Torah, the food, the bread of Torah, of Torah, the water of Torah, you'll quench its thirst. And you know what? Your erstwhile enemy is not so dangerous anymore. The Talmud in the book of Sota notes that the Hebrew word for man, ish, and woman, isha, both have the letters aleph shin, which spells ish, which means fire. Just the man has ish plus a yud, and the woman has ish plus a hey. And the letters yud and hey make up at the name of God. Says the Talmud, if a man and a woman are meritorious, and then the name of God is amongst them. And if they're not meritorious, if the name of God leaves them, all you have is fire and fire. All you have is a calamitous conflagration. Now, what does this mean? So the sages tell us that in the event that the husband and wife position their fire, their passion in a way that's proper, they take their Yetzirah and they put the name of God, so to speak, between them. They direct it, they channel it properly. And the name of God is amongst them and the fire has been subdued. But if they allow the name of God to be expelled from their life, all you have is the fire and fire. The fire of the Yetzirah and the fire of the Yetzirah creates a big conflagration that will engulf them. The Yetzirah, it's fire. It's an enemy. What do you do with that? You could feed your enemy with food and water, and they become a friend. They become an ally. You could take this fire and add the name of God to it, and now the presence of God is there, and the fire is neutralized. Or you could allow the Yetzirah, the enemy, the fire to consume you, and then you are in big trouble. Now, the truth is, this idea can be presented in the opposite way. We know that the antidote to the Yetzirah is Torah. Barasi Yetzirah, I created an evil inclination. I created the Torah 
as an antidote, the Talmud tells us in the book of Kiddush in page 30b. Torah's completely good, right? The Talmud tells us, not exactly. If you are meritorious, the Torah is an elixir of life. But if you are not meritorious, then it becomes a potion of death. Even Torah, which is just goodness, there is a way to position it, there is a way to orient it, that it can become a potion of death. But we have a wonderful idea here about the the labor of love, that it can be more cherished than anything else. If you take the Yitzhara and you redirect it, you guide it, you channel it into something positive, productive, healthy, uplifting, spawning legions of the nation, God is more desirous of that. It's more cherished in the eyes of the Almighty than anything else. Now, I want to share another incredible idea on this laver, the laver of love, as we call it here. Now, I want to frame it as a question. After all, we promise to make you more intelligent about the Parsha. So we like to have an idea and a question and thereby raise your IQ. Now, this second segment, it's not just a segment that you just add, that you appendage to the show. This one could have been the eye itself, and maybe it should have been the eye itself. It's perhaps one of the deepest ideas, something really incredible. So listen carefully. These polished copper mirrors were not the only questionable items brought to the tabernacle. Earlier on in the parasha, chapter 35, verse 22, it talks about the various Jewelry items made of gold that the men and the women brought towards the fundraising drive. And it tells us they brought rings and bracelets and earrings and also kumas. Well, what is a kumas? So Rashi tells us that this was a gold ornament that covered women's genitalia, and the word kumas is short for kan makam zima, meaning here is a place of promiscuity. And these gold ornaments were brought to the tabernacle. Now, it's kind of an amazing thing. Moshe, when he sees the polished copper mirrors, he protests. This is not appropriate to bring to the tabernacle. These were used by women to beautify themselves. And of course, the man says, no, it's actually more, more cherished, as we've seen. But somehow, when it comes to these kumas adornments, Moshe does not protest at all. He accepts it right away. And it seems to be inconsistent. We would imagine that the kumas is, is way worse. It's much more offensive than the polished mirrors. This question is asked by Maharal and Ramban. Ramban gives one answer, but we're going to focus on the Maharal's answer because it's it's really amazing. So the first thing he says is that, well, the kumas, yes, it was a gold ornament that was placed in the um, nether regions 
of the women, but it was not used to spur the Yetzirah. It was, in fact, there to curb it. It was like a, like a chastity belt. And therefore, it, it wasn't there to encourage the Yetzirah, but quite the opposite, to, to limit it, to mitigate it. That's the first sense that he tells us. And then he offers a second answer. There was a fundamental difference between how the laver was made and how all the other vessels were made. By all the other vessels, the original materials were first assembled and then recreated into something else. So people came with their gold and and their silver, and it was first melted down. And their previous use case was completely forgotten. It was completely unrecognizable. Take all the gold and put it together into one crucible, and you just create these ingots, these blocks, these bricks of gold. And as a result, it was all put into one big pile, and it was created into one big hunk of gold, and the original source, the original type of jewelry that it came from, it doesn't even matter. But the laver that was made of those mirrors of polished copper, that wasn't melted down into one hunk of, co- of copper that was used to recreate the laver? Oh no, the laver itself, the tiar was made just of those mirrors. They were never broken down and repurposed and recreated. It was just the mirrors were attached together and that was your laver. An amazing idea. All the parts of the tabernacle were all made from donated materials. But the laver, the key or the laver of love as we call it here, it was made completely differently than any other item. All the other items, there was a process. You donate the material, and that's restored to their base material, the the metal, the yarn, melted into bars. And then it's refashioned into the end vessel. So all the gold jewelry, including the aforementioned Kuma's adornment, the earrings, the bracelet, the rings, all sorts of gold were melted down into massive blocks of gold. And that was used to fashion vessels that bore absolutely no resemblance to the original jewelry. But the laver was made of the mirrors made of copper. The copper was not melted down to be refashioned into the laver. The mirrors themselves were pieced together, unaltered, into the laver. And this is why Moshe was more worried about the mirrors than the kumas. The kumas was long gone and forgotten about. By the time the gold that came from it had been made something entirely completely, unrecognizably different. This is an incredible idea from the Maharal. The laver was made of the actual mirrors that the Jewish women in Egypt used to spawn a glorious nation, legions of Jews. That's the Maharal. But here's the question. We're taking this another step deeper. Why, indeed, did the laver need to come from these mirrors? All the other items, you could melt it down and create a big hunk of that metal. 
and then recreate that metal into whatever you want. Why not melt the copper back into a big block of copper and use that to make the TR to make the laver? And that would solve Moshe's problem. He would have no problem with the mirrors, just as he has no problem with the kumas. Why was it imperative to use the mirrors as is for the laver? This is an interesting question. And the answer is one of the deepest and most powerful ideas that we've ever shared in the Parsha podcast. And I heard this from Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz. He noted that the laver did something that appears nowhere else in Jewish life and Jewish jurisprudence. You have a suspected adulteress. She was warned not to seclude with a given man. And then she secluded with said man for sufficient time for adultery to happen. Now, we don't know what happened behind closed doors. If, God forbid, she committed adultery, then by law, both she and the adulterer are guilty of capital crime. And she has to separate from her husband. They must divorce. And the husband's not responsible to pay her the tsuba severance. And that's what would happen if she, in fact, is guilty of infidelity. Now, if she was innocent, then they can resume living together and that incident can be forgotten. All's well. But we don't know what happened behind closed doors. And this is a halachic dilemma with grave halachic ramifications. Now, what happens is really strange. She's brought to the temple. They go to the laver, and they use some water from the laver along with some other ingredients to concoct a special drink. Who's going to judge this woman? Who's going to determine what happened behind closed doors? This drink from the laver of love. If she was innocent, how will we know from the laver? The drink from the laver will tell us. If she was guilty, the drink from the laver will tell us. This is a miracle. And this is the only halachic case that's determined, that's resolved, that is adjudicated by a miracle. Every other case must be resolved by non-miraculous means. You've got to bring evidence, arguments, proof, witnesses, testimony, documentation. That is how the court typically resolves halachic uncertainties. In exactly one case, the suspected adulteress, the halachic dilemma is resolved by a miracle. You have an ordinary case. You are not allowed to go to the prophet to have him resolve it. The Torah is not in the heavens, is the line of the Talmud. We don't rely on miracles to resolve halachic dilemmas. Even the Urum and Tumim never was used for a halachic question. In one case, in one case alone, we use the water of the laver, the water of the Kiar, to resolve the question. With the water from those copper mirrors that the women in Egypt used to perpetuate the nation, to spawn legions 
of Jews. With that, Laver, we resolve a halachic question. Where does the Laver have this power from? How does it have the power to resolve this halachic dilemma in a way unlike every other halachic dilemma? The answer is that it comes from those mirrors. Those mirrors of copper that the women used to promote love and harmony between husband and wife, families, to build families in Egypt. And that sacrifice and that commitment and that resolve, that tenacious resolve to not allow their families to fall apart in Egypt, that self-sacrifice implanted itself into those copper mirrors And those copper mirrors are forever endowed with the spiritual ability to promote love and harmony and continuity between husband and wife. And this is the reason why those mirrors had to be used in the laver unaltered. You can just take them, melt them down to their original base material and then reconstruct them. The laver had to be made of those mirrors in order to contain the power of those brave women in Egypt. Only those mirrors themselves had the power to do the work of the laver. Melting them down was not an option. I think this is a profound and powerful, life-changing idea. The heroic women in Egypt created harmonious homes amidst the, the unimaginably harsh conditions. They fostered marital harmony in a place where it was just impossible for such relationships to exist. And they created families. They created a concept of a a stable, harmonious home. And through that, they're able to spawn an army of a nation. By doing that, and through the tools that they employed, they created an aura, a reality of harmony. And the, the, the power of harmonious matrimonial life, it lives forever inside those mirrors. And thus, inside the laver of love, inside the laver made of those mirrors, those same mirrors that were used to stabilize their homes in Egypt. Those mirrors forever have the eternal ability to restabilize homes that are on shaky grounds. This idea is very powerful for us to think about. Our actions create enduring spiritual power. When we do something heroic, something courageous, something that really demands a lot of effort on our part, that spiritual power reverberates within the world and within the object of our mitzvah forever. What we're doing here is not just we're following the laws and we want to make sure that we are compliant with the rules. What we're doing is creating eternal realities and power. And the weight and the gravity of our actions should never be underestimated with every mitzvah. We're changing the spiritual makeup of the whole world. And of course, every sin has that effect in the opposite direction. With every deed, we either elevate everything, our environment, even the inanimate parts 
of our world, or God forbid, we can damage it as well. Every action, every speech, even every thought will affect the reality of the world around us. When I was thinking about this, I remembered that we spoke about this a little bit earlier on in the year, Parshas Noach. So I guess it's a recurring theme this year in the Parsha podcast. But the takeaway is powerful. We have great responsibility. The Midrash tells us that God told Adam, take care to not destroy the world that I made. Mankind, humanity, we have that power. We have the power to elevate everything around us. Of course, we have the opposite power as well. And these women, these heroic women in Egypt, restored and rebuilt the homes that were on shaky grounds with copper mirrors. And those mirrors became spiritual litmus tests of righteousness and of stabilizing homes thenceforth. Now, this idea is something which is very theoretical for us, very abstract for us. Our Sages tell us that in times of yore, when people had more spiritual sensitivity and a more acute feeling of, of spirituality, they were able to perceive this. The Talmud tells us that the sages who were traveling from Babylon to Israel they were able to pinpoint the exact place where the land of Israel began and the land of Babylon ended because they sensed it in the stones. The stones were heavier. And of course, that doesn't mean that they were physically heavier. It means that they were they were spiritually weighted. They were enriched with the special spiritual power of the land. This is the land in which God's presence is most felt. And they were able to perceive that. We don't have that sense this is a very valuable lesson for us. The lessons of the labor, our actions create seismic changes to everything around us, to everything that we encounter. I thank you for listening. I deeply appreciate that you give me your attention here as I am gesticulating wildly in the studio in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I thank you so much for your attention. Have an incredible rest of your day. A fantastic, splendid, terrific week of coming. A sensational, elevated, enriching, spiritually meteoric Shabbos of coming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.